we are in a series called The Reflections of Christ. Uh, we are working through the book of Colossians through this series over the next few weeks. And Pastor Ross kicked off our series last week. Uh, he looked at really what is the introductory to the letter of Colossians. Uh, just in case you weren't here, just a little refresher. Uh, the author of the book of Colossians is the Apostle Paul. Uh, he was a missionary about 30-some years after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. And he planted several churches in the Mediterranean Sea area. Uh, and uh, through his ministry, uh, he wrote letters to different churches. This church, the Church of Colossae, uh, was a small body of believers in a town that was more inland uh, than most of the churches uh, that were in his network. This church was actually planted by a guy named Epaphras. Uh, Epaphras then traveled to go see Paul. And Paul then was writing a letter that he would then take back to the Colossian church. And so this is this letter. Uh, as I said, Pastor Lewis started our series. Uh, we were looking at the introductory of the letter, and now we're really getting into the meat of this letter. From this point on, it gets deep, uh, and it starts to really flesh out a lot of theological ideas and practical ideas and the things that really Paul wanted to focus on in his letter. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 20. Uh, it's Bible, so you can turn there. Uh, we're going to be hanging out there for pretty much all service. The few other verses we're going to turn to, they will be up on the screen uh, for you to see. Uh, so if you want to turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 20, uh, and I'll read through uh, before we start going through the passage. Verse 15 and following. Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the first one from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, this passage is broken down into two main sections. The first section is going to be verses 15 to 17. And this is what we're going to start at. This section is going to focus on Christ being Lord of all creation, and how all of creation is supposed to reflect Christ. We're going to see a huge picture of who Jesus is. Uh, and I, I like this, this, uh, these verses. It reminds me of when uh, I met this gentleman uh, at a golf course, and uh, we were playing golf, uh, or I was talking to him at the golf course, and uh, we were chatting. He's like a normal guy. Uh, and then I came to find out that he was a major league baseball pitcher. Uh, he pitched against Greg Maddox, if any of you know who that is, maybe you don't, um, in a playoff game. In major league baseball, I was like, what? I was like, 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 and the veil is going to be really back a little bit into the immensity and the power of Christ. 
And so we're going to start here in verse 15. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, we read this, we read the image of the invisible God, and we immediately go to Christ's incarnation. Right? He's the image. His life, death, and resurrection was a complete reflection of what God wanted. Right? He was the reflection, unbroken, unsinful, perfectly reflecting Christ, perfectly reflecting God here on earth. Now, this word image is interesting that it was used uh, here because God often, not often, He did forbid uh, the Jews in the Testament to make any image of Himself. And why would He do that? Because anything that we would craft would fall short of who God is. Anything you would think or imagine of who this God is when we would paint a picture or put some sort of rock structure or mold something together. And he said, well, this is God. It would fall short drastically from who God really is and, and uh, in his, who he is in his essence. And so God said, don't do that. Not only not to do that, but then we would end up worshiping idols, right? We would worship these things that we may say, well, this is God. Not only does it reflect God, it is God. Right? So he said, don't do that, okay? Uh, anything you make your worship here is going to fall short of who he truly is. But God knew his own image. You know, we cannot craft an image of God. We can't come up with some sort of thing that reflects God 100%. God said, I can do that. And I will send my son as a reflection. And so we see his ministry. We see the things that he did. The things that he taught. How he helped people, how he healed people, and how he taught true life. And now here the verse has to get rolled back. He's the firstborn of all creation. This starts to really set the stage for the theme of what he's going to write next. Well, the image of the invisible God, so we, we bear that. That's why he's the firstborn of all creation. The one born of Mary, uh, his little infant, the one that we know, the one that hung out with the disciples that ate food and, and uh, you know, just didn't have no life. He's the firstborn of all creation. That's what his firstborn, what does he mean? That he's the first created thing that God made? No, that's actually a heresy. Uh, that's a false teaching. It was the first greatest thing that God made. Uh, this word here, firstborn, uh, it's last creation, is really a word that was given as a status symbol uh, to uh, people in that culture. And even sometimes today, uh, those who were firstborn uh, back then were given certain rights and privileges to their family line. Right? We know they were often given the inheritance of the family. They were kind of preeminent among the other siblings. Uh, and so, uh, this title, firstborn, uh, became something that was used normally. Because sometimes the firstborn, either they passed away before it got to them, or they decided not to inherit and take on the rights and privileges of that next step in line. And so, the firstborn right and privileges would then go to the second sibling, and so on and so forth. And so, we see this example in this passage. In uh, Psalm chapter 89, verse 25. And this is God saying something to David, King David. He says, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the exalted of the kings of the earth. Now, is this God saying, you know, David is firstborn? No. But we see here, this is the classic language used to instill this higher uh, way of, of uh, having rights and privileges within a family. That God's saying, even though you're the youngest, David, you will be like the firstborn in my line that will eventually lead to Christ. 
And so this is something common uh, to, to understand, and people in the first century would understand uh, this language. He was the firstborn over all creation. I mean, he is preeminent. He is supreme over all creation. He's not a created thing among other created things. He is the thing that created all things. And so now we start to move into this idea of all things. How, how is it that he is, the, he is supreme of all creation? What are the reasons for that? What are the things we can point to to back this claim up? In verse uh, 16 to 17, we'll bear those assertions. The assertions of uh, how he is the firstborn over all creation. And so in this next section we're gonna, in our sermon, we're going to look at three main ways that he is over all things. Uh, we're going to necessarily go in order of the passage, because I think Paul sometimes rhymes some things here. He, he says things kind of similarly, so I don't want to repeat pretty much the same thing that he says. Um, so we're going to combine some ideas. Um, so the first way that he is over all creation uh, is that he is in him and through him all things were created. In him and through him all things were created, visible and invisible. Uh, this is the end of everything that he, everything was created through Christ. Uh, that means all the galaxies, all the stars, all the planets, the massiveness of our universe. Christ had a hand in it. Christ was someone that his fingerprints were all over all creation. His fingerprints are all over this creation, planet Earth. Over all of the plants and the animals and people, this fingerprint is on how things were created. There's this great quote I found in this commentary uh, that I'll read to you real quick. It says, The Father, of course, has a significant relationship to creation. You often think that the Father is the one who created all things. And he is presented as the architect, God the Father. You see that in Genesis 1. He determined to bring creation into existence. The Son, Jesus, actually brought the plans into existence. Through his creative imagination and power, the created order exists. He is, in a sense, the foreman of the construction. And we'll see this in two other verses. This is a theme throughout Scripture, not just here in Colossians. You see this in John chapter 1, where John writes, Through him, that is Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So Christ, over and over again, through the Old Testament, is affirmed that he is an integral part of creating all things. Those things that we see and what we don't see. Even in the spiritual realm, he created the angels and the angelic beings. And in this world, in this temporal world, the invisible things are our emotions. Right? There's no way we can show, like, physically, the emotion of joy. Like, you see expressions of it, but you can never just say, well, that's joy. It's an, it's an invisible emotion that gets expressed physically. But these are invisible things. Our emotions are invisible. Our joy, our happiness, our sadness, our disappointment. As these things, Christ created, He created our emotional uh, being. He created our spiritual being. The things that we do not see, He created. And so we have this 
they roll back and say, wow, the same Christ who is here on earth was the one who created everything. And in him and through him, all things were created. And the second part we see here of him uh, being integral in all things is that he is before all things. He is before everything. And this goes to counter the false teaching that he was the first created thing. Like Christ was before all things. He existed eternally in a triune relationship with Father and Holy Spirit. He existed eternally in that state. He didn't have to create something. He created something out of His love and His free will choice. It was something He decided to do to create the whole universe, create earth, and create us. He was before all things. And thirdly, uh, in Him all things hold together. All things hold together. Uh, the scientific laws of the universe of gravity uh, and other things that exist out there. I'm not going to go on and on about all the different scientific laws out there. But the things that we discover are things that we're existing, that we're discovering, and Christ made those things. He's the one that formed gravity. He's the one that came up with that idea. And in some mystical way, he also is integral in holding the universe together. And also, he's really plays uh, an integral part in holding relationships together. Uh, he is, again, he exists in a triune relationship with Father and Holy Spirit. He's a communal God. And so, he creates things in relationship with one another. And he desires that. He desires good, true friendship. He created the idea of friendship, he created the idea of marriage. So in him, all friendships, relationships, and marriages hold together. It is through his power that that happens. And so, hopefully, we're going to get this massive picture of who Jesus is, his power, his influence over all creation. Right? He's not just uh, the, the guy who came down here to earth, helped a few people, taught a few good things, died for sins, and rose back from the dead and went back to heaven. He is immense. His power is beyond our understanding. His love is beyond, our, beyond understanding. And his involvement in creation is beyond understanding. So what is the purpose of all this creation? If he is an integral part of all this, why did he create it? And we come into the last part of this section, which says in verse 17, it's in verse 16. Uh, he created, uh, sorry, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything was created for Christ. So he created all things, invisible and visible, and all things are meant to then point back to him. All things are meant to find their meaning and purpose in Christ. All things are for Jesus. And so, coming from the morning to our life, everything that He has given us is meant then to be given back to Him, meant to reflect back to Him. So, the talents He gives us, the talents that we have, are given to us by Christ. He made them and gave them to us, and we're supposed to reflect them back to Christ. Our emotions are meant to be pointed back to Christ and find the ultimate happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ is how we are shaped. That's how our soul is shaped, that we are meant to find our satisfaction in Christ. 
Our jobs are meant to reflect Christ. What do we do as a profession? He gives to us, and we're built, made by Him, for Him, and then we are meant to then give back to Him, reflect it back to Him. And so all creation is meant to point back to Christ, is made for Him, for His glory, and for His use. And sadly, we often choose not to do this. Sadly, we take the things that God gives us, and instead of reflecting back to Him, we choose to make and reflect our own image. And we see this starting in Genesis as the first and original sin. All things are meant to reflect back to Christ, but often we fall short. This started in the garden with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. You can go there on the slide. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, we have Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, and God said that they could eat from any tree in the garden. They could enjoy everything that God had created, but not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, which is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so we see here, uh, verse, verse 6 in chapter 3, says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband, and he ate. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve, and they fell into sin. From that moment, all of creation fell under the curse of sin. Not just our own being, our souls, our emotions, our physical bodies fell under the curse of sin and death, but all of creation, physical earth, all of creation fell under the curse of sin, fell under the brokenness of sin. Death entered the world, and the twistingness of good entered into our soul. We are not broken. The things that God gives us, we quickly start claiming our own. And as Adam and Eve here, they start then deciding what is right and wrong. They saw that the knowledge of tree of the knowledge the tree of knowledge of good and evil was what would help them grow in wisdom, like human wisdom. They saw that it was a light to the eyes and it make them wise, and so they decided to take that bite. And from that moment, they became the, the determiners of what was right and wrong. They rejected God and rebelled against God. And they became the ones that started crafting their own reality. Instead of trusting in God's intended purpose for creation, that all their happiness, their joy, their understanding in life, what would bring them fulfillment, would to be in Christ, they started thinking that their own ways would bring true happiness and contentment. And from that moment, all of humanity fell under creation. They were the first two humans, and under that curse, they continued just to birth more sinners. And more sinners and more sinners became more prevalent in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and even today, we are all under the curse of sin because of Adam and Eve. And so we choose to make our own reflections. And this is the state of our culture, of our lives. We fall short of God's wealth, of God's standard. 
And we think that because we're here for maybe 60 to 80, 90 years, we know we will bring ultimate happiness and joy to our lives. We don't want to trust an eternal being to do that. And so even though in our very small minds, we devise these ways we think we know what will bring happiness and joy to our lives, God does not give up on us. God is faithful when we are not faithful. And He decided to bring healing and forgiveness to creation. And we come to our next passage. You can skip that one. The next, the next two sections, you can skip that slide. The next two sections are verses. 18 through 20. They're going to see that he is reconciled all things. That even though all creation is under the curse of sin, even though we choose to, to follow our own way, Christ is faithful to us. And we see here in verse 18 that he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Within the body of believers, uh, that he is the one that gives direction to the church. He says, Our heads are pretty much the, the main determiners of our direction in our day and what we think is important in our day. Christ, over the universal church, not just here at Trinity, not just the Colossian church, but the church universal. Christ is the one leading it, he's the one who animates the church, and he is the one whom honor is given to in the church. And so, this phrase, he is the head of the church. He is the one through whom is given the direction of the church. We look to him as a body of believers to follow his guidance on what he wants us to do in the world and in our community and in our lives. The phrase, he is the beginning, firstborn among the dead, is a direct reference to the resurrection. He is the firstborn among the dead. He was the first one that rose from the dead. The first one that showed that death was defeated. Uh, that he resurrected from the dead was the beginning of a new understanding of humanity. It was the beginning of understanding that death was defeated, that we did not have to fear death anymore. That he has reached down into the deepest depths of our sin, and he has reached down to the deepest depths of its effects. And that he defeated it. And that through doing that, he was going to bring reconciliation. Through his death and resurrection, he brought reconciliation. In verse 20, it says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Here we have. In the midst of madness, 
in the cross and the resurrection. At that time in history, God was reconciling all things to himself. He was forming a new reality. A reality that to him is known. To Christ and to God, at the moment of the cross and the resurrection, all things were reconciled because he made peace through the cross. And so how do we then move into this reality that God has, crea- has created? That he has reconciled all things. And he has made all things right. He has healed all things. And that all things are at peace. We obviously do not see that in our world right now. So how does this work? Jesus often talked about this dynamic in his ministry. We call it the now and not yet. Uh, that there is a present reality now, but it is not fully realized. It is not fully brought into being. It is not fully brought into awareness of our temporal space, our reality that we live here on earth. But to God, these things have been done, and that he is moving humanity towards that end. It's now and not yet. And so, this is a main work that God is doing in the world. He has reconciled all things, and he is moving humanity and all creation into that end. And so, as Christians, we fundamentally see reality and good works and our work in reconciling things and bringing that work into bearing reality different than someone who is outside of Christ. Because what we do as Christians is we really work to bring about what was already accomplished. When we do, when we work in reconciliation ways, when we bring reconciliation to an, to an area, to a relationship, to God, we are just aligning our lives here on earth to what He sees. We are accomplishing something. It's not rubbing the dust off the mirror. The mirror is already there. It's not as strive as the world strives. And we see this example in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Check this out. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So he's saying to the, the Ephesian church, Make every effort to keep what already is there. But there's division in their church. How, how can there be unity existing with the unity of the Spirit? How are we working to keep that if there is division? Because through the perspective of God, the church is unified through the Spirit. He sees that. And so when we, when a church or any organization or a relationship moves in disunity, they're moving outside of the realm of what is truly reality. That is God's reality. And so if you work to bring unity here in Trinity, it's not that we're 
thriving in our power to do something. We're just working to move into alignment to the unity that already exists in the Spirit here and now. We just come to discover that. We discover what already exists. And so, this work that Christ did comes to bear in real life, here and now. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and following, he talks about two groups being reconciled, the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were God's chosen people, and the Gentiles were the people outside of God's covenant people. And Christ, through the cross, now opened up that ability for the Gentiles who were outside to now be brought in. So verse 11 and following says, Therefore remember that you who were formerly Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done by the body of by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So when the Gentiles came into the body of Christ, they were doing something that Christ had already accomplished. He had already made the two groups one at the cross. He had broken down the wall of hostility. He had destroyed the barrier. And so there was no more barrier. There was no more thing keeping them apart. If they lived contrary to that, they were living against reality. It was the true nature of how God saw things. And so when they were brought in, when some Gentiles then believed in Christ, and Jews believed in Christ, they moved into a reality that already existed. They weren't creating some new thing. It was moving into alignment to what God had accomplished. And so this is something that comes to bear in our own lives. How can we reflect Christ's reconciliation to the world how can we do this? We see these examples in Ephesians about how this reconciliation work played out in first century Mediterranean area between churches, between Gentiles and Jews. How does it start to play out in our own life, in our own world? First, it starts with you. It starts within you. Do you believe in Christ? Do you have an angst against God? Do you have an issue with God or His people? That is a place to start. To do that work. To go to God and to place your faith in Christ. He is the one that brings healing to your life. And when you believe, when you come to believe in Christ, the peace you experience is the peace that was already existing. You came now to move into that peace. It starts within you. If there's something within you that you have an issue with God, bring it to Him. 
work that out. How you need to work it out. For Christ, work is reconciliation. He's working now in all of creation to bring reconciliation. And if you don't believe in Christ, you are angry at God. Partner with God in working through to bring peace to your heart and to your mind. Because this is the reality that, that exists. If you're a believer and you have become bitter towards God, I would encourage you to seek reconciliation with God. Seek peace with God. It then moves into our relationships with one another. Once you do the work of heart in your life, and the work of your mind in your life, to bring peace to your relationship with God, it then starts to move out into relationships with one another. If your relationship with God is off, it affects every other relationship in your life. So you need to start with God first and foremost. But then once you do it, it moves into your relationships. Is there a relationship that is hurt or broken? You do not need to strive as the world strives to fix that. You are to move and place your trust in God that through His timing, He will bring that relationship right. That you move in relationship and in congruence with God. That He sees that relationship already reconciled. He already sees that relationship that you have broken reconciled. That will be a reality one day, whether you experience it here on earth or later, it is reconciled. How then do you move into that relationship? How do you, how do you move into that reality? How do you bring heaven to earth within your relationships? And then you move down into the broader world. How do you fight for justice? Where people are being hurt or oppressed, where the voice, the voiceless, are not being heard, where people are being taken advantage of or hurt. As Christians, we cannot turn a blind eye to this, and we don't necessarily have to think that we are the ones that will bring this about. In God, these things already exist. We want to work to bring the world into alignment to what God is doing and has already done. We need it if we don't have this massive burden in our life to do that. The burden is on God. We just want to work to make that reflection brighter. To bring about the true light into the world. The light that exists. And that we need to continue to reflect brighter and brighter into the world. And so what communities can you be a voice for? What people within your circle can you stand up for? What issues in the world can you uh, work to make right that are wrong? In doing so, you're partnering with God and bringing reconciliation to the world. And so these are some things that we can 
bring to bear in our life when it comes to reconciling uh, our life to God and reflecting Christ's already done work of reconciliation to the world.